The scripture references 1 Corinthians 15, but as always, when time allots, we're going to start with the proverb of the day. And if you wouldn't mind turning with me to Proverbs 12, 4, as you're turning there, it's right in the center of your Bible if you have an Old, an old and New Testament. As we're turning there, um, you know, there's a lot of Proverbs that are kind of grouped together. They have a main thought, three or four verses together, uh, and then some that I call the standalone verses. And this is one of those standalone verses. You'll have a group, you'll have a standalone verse, and then you'll have another grouping afterwards. So as you're turning there, I'm going to read it. It says, an excellent wife or a woman of valor is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Very interesting. We can make a lot of applications here. Um, I believe that a wife can often make or break a man. I find it humorous. My son and I play chess. Whoever discovered or invented the chessboard, if you look at all the three, six, seven, 16 pieces on one side, the queen is the most powerful. <laughs> you don't want to lose your queen in chess. So I, I, I find that humorous. I was also uh, looking at a movie, uh, watching a movie. It was about a wedding. And the uh, mother is giving her daughter advice, you know, before she goes to get married. And she says, remember, the man is the head of the household, but the wife is the neck that turns the head. <laughs> okay? An okay man's reputation can be can be made far better by a wife of, or a woman of valor. I even look at somebody who had a bad reputation in the Old Testament, Nabal. He was a fool. He was an idiot. He so insulted David and his forces that they were coming to kill him. But his wife, Abigail, was a woman of valor. She met and stopped David and his troops and offered them bread and, and drink, and she tried to appease him so he wouldn't kill her dumb husband. So this woman was certainly a woman of valor, and she did save her husband's life. But a decent man can also, it's a double-edged sword here, a decent man can be brought down by a shallow or worldly or carnal wife. Some men are weak-willed and they'll just give in for the sake of peace. There's a slogan that dates back to 1945 that says, behind every great man is a great woman. And the feminists later adopted that slogan. It's very interesting. But there's a biblical counterpart to that. It's a true statement. Proverbs 31, the uh, virtuous wife, the woman of valor. This is a woman who was an incredible wife. She was an incredible example of a, a Christian woman. And you see two verses, only two verses devoted to her husband, one or two verses. And he goes into the, the square, he goes into the gates of the city, and he's well known. He has a notoriety, right? And you really get the impression from reading Proverbs 31 that a lot of his success and his reputation is due to his virtuous wife. And even in ministry, it's vital. You know, um, again, a, a good wife, a good partner can make, a break or make or break a man in ministry. There are some pastors who have had to step down because their, their homes were not in order. I'll tell you an interesting story. We had a couple uh, here, an older couple, much older than my wife and I, and uh, they ended up moving for financial reasons, but they were a really integral part of this church. And for years, they would come and they'd be polite and... Uh, one day they invited us over after a few years, one or two years, they invited my wife and I over for dinner. And after small talk, they said, we've been watching you, <laughs> you and Heather. Talk about living in a fishbowl. But they said, you know, the church that we came from, the wife, the, the pastor and his wife were just not on the same sheet of music. She didn't sit under him. They didn't do things together. It was almost like that was his job. And we wanted to make sure before we made this our home that you guys were in harmony together and in ministry. And I must say, this isn't my job. 
This is a calling. And my wife is my partner. She's involved. She's always served. Right now, she's teaching your teen girls how to become women of valor. And in, in a lot of ways, I've got to tell you that she buffers my social skills. <laughs> so I, I attribute anything that's good in me to, number one, the Lord, and also my wife's working with me. And we're truly a partnership. So this is just another example of the woman's importance and influence, especially in a marriage. Okay, we're going to jump fast forward about to a thousand about a thousand years. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And that's going to be our New Testament study. So the last time we saw the gifts of the Holy Spirit, more specifically, focus was really on tongues and prophecy. And today we're going to see the resurrection. And this is going to be the first installment because it's got 58 verses and I don't want to rush through it. Well, let me give you a little context. Greek culture philosophy and theology, they scoffed at the resurrection idea. They had their pantheon of gods, and when the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts came to Athens, he talked to them, he talked to them about the resurrected Christ, and immediately some scoffed at him, but others listened. Well, this problem crept into the church, and we can make an application to any church throughout the ages, how the world, worldliness, will creep into the church. So this idea and this scoffing, because the Greeks were intellects, and uh, some of the Christians may have been embarrassed um, to openly profess the resurrection when they would be scoffed out in public. So what you have here is uh, another problem in Corinth, where worldly ideas were creeping into the church, and the Apostle Paul had to address this. This was way too important a subject for, the, for him to ignore. And let me just say this, I could have named this chapter last but not least. And I really believe, listen, I don't know what was going through the Apostle Paul's head, but after this largely corrective letter, okay, chapter 16 is his parting thoughts, thoughts, but chapter 15, I believe he in a sense saved us for last because it was the most important and would leave such an impression on those at the end of this letter. Even today, and I make no apologies for this statement, it cannot be called Christian if it doesn't include the resurrection. Say that again. It cannot be called, you can call it anything you want. It's window dressing. But Pastor Joe, how can you say that? It's an established denomination for hundreds of years. I don't care. If the resurrection, I don't care how big the numbers are. And God doesn't care how big the numbers are. If you look in the Bible, God usually did very well with small numbers, not large numbers. If the resurrection is not a part of it, it is not Christian. And we're going to discuss that. <laughs> Chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel. Salvation is predicated upon the gospel. You have to hold fast to the word. John 14 and 15, two great chapters. In John 14, Jesus says he divides us all into two camps. Two camps. He says, if you love me, you will follow my word. Those who hate me will not follow my word. Which camp do we fall into? John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And in one portion, he says that if the branches don't abide in the vine, they dry up and they wither and they're good for nothing. What are they good for, if you remember? To be gathered up and thrown into the fire. Pretty serious imagery there. So, this is what we believe in, and this is what we stand in. Otherwise, he says, our belief is useless. And the question today is, look at modern Christianity. Some of these points are compromised. 
I've given you the statistics before, I believe in Resurrection Sunday this year, of how many pastors, ministers, don't believe in the resurrection. Well, the Apostle Paul is right. We are coming into the age of the great apostasy, the great falling away. The Bible says that much of, of, of the faith will fall away, and then the end will come. And I believe we're living in those ages. How can you call it a Christian organization if you don't believe in the resurrection? Three. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. He says that twice. It goes into more detail. Three points. Number one, the substitutionary, the atoning death. Jesus shed his blood for the remission of our sins. Two, his death. He did die, and he was buried. And three, his resurrection and fulfillment of the scriptures. And he says... According to the scriptures. Well, the New Testament wasn't codified yet. So what is he referring to? The Old Testament. You can find all this stuff in the Old Testament. And I could rattle off a whole list of um, scriptures. I've done it before, but um, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the substitutionary death, the resurrection, Hosea 6, 1 and 2, Matthew 12, 38 through 40, where Jesus refers to the only sign given to this generation will be the sign of Jonah, an allusion to the resurrection. What's not here? Salvation by denomination. Salvation by good works. Salvation if you feel guilty and you give enough money to the church, um, that'll assuage your sin. You'll be fine. Or any road that leads to heaven. It's not in there. Why is the resurrection important? Well, look at some of the other faiths. Buddhists, Muslims, whoever. Uh, I've read the, the writings. I have two Korans at home that I look through to see if things are really as people say they are. And even, even uh, Muhammad said that I, I can't die for your sins. I can't do anything to get you closer to God. Muhammad, even though he was the greatest prophet, according to the Muslims, in his own words, had limitations. But we worship a savior who said, I will die and I will rise again. I'll be the first fruits of the resurrection. So my point is this, that a dead savior can't save anyone. And that's Paul's point too. If he was still in that tomb and they could produce the body, I certainly wouldn't be here 2,000 years later because I don't have anything in common with a dead Savior. But we know that Jesus did rise again in fulfillment of scriptures, and I'll go through, that, through some of that stuff. Ample opportunity was given in the first century for both the Roman government and the Jewish leadership to refute. And they had to refute this. Why? Because, see, there was a lot of bloodshed in the first century. The religious leaders had a thing going. There was some corruption by Jewish writers speaking about their Jewish leadership. There was corruption in the Roman government, and they were at odds with each other. They hated each other. But they developed this tenuous, flimsy type of relationship just to keep the peace, to stop more people from dying. And then Jesus comes along, and he messes everything up. He calls the religious leaders hypocrites. He had things to say about the Roman government, and he told people to be born again of the Spirit. And that caused a lot of ruckus and uproar. And it caused, later on, more bloodshed. So, this Jesus had to be dealt with. Well, they, they killed him, right? But they were also told that he said he was going to rise again. So put a contingent of a guard, put the Roman seal, put the stone against the, the opening. Um, they had all these provisions to stop anyone from raiding the tomb or pretending that he rose again. And guess what? He rose again, and they couldn't find the body, Right? What's amazing is that, that I find is, all right, 
well, Joe, you know, you just look at the Bible because you're a pastor and that's what you have to do. No problem. No problem. I've looked at the writings of Roman historians who were not believers. Josephus Flavius, Phallus, Tacitus, and the like. And they all say the same thing. The funny thing is, in trying to deny some of the miracles, I believe it was Phallus, who said this Jesus. So there's a historical fact that Jesus existed because everyone points to him, all right? Even if you put the Bible aside. And he says, this Jesus... You know, when he died, um, there was a great darkness over the land, and uh, maybe there was an eclipse. So unwittingly, they're actually attesting to the miracles that surrounded Jesus by trying to explain them away. Don't you realize that? It's pretty amazing stuff. You know, Joseph, Josephus Flavius said there was this man at the time named Jesus. If it be lawful, a man, for he did great signs and wonders. Hey, I'm not a believer, but let me tell you something. I'm a historian, and there was a lot of really wild stuff that surrounded this man. So anyone would have to be a fool not to believe that Jesus existed. And there's plenty of evidences for his resurrection too. And by the way, the idea of the eclipse is ridiculous because Nisan 14th, I believe, fell uh, more on the full moon. So from one day to the other, you couldn't have had a total eclipse. It it just wasn't uh, astronomically possible. So it just was trying to explain it away. And of course, they couldn't do it. Verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, or euphemistic for have died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostle, apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So, witnesses to the resurrected Christ, and many of these witnesses would speak about Jesus in their own writings. And James is interesting because he's mentioned by himself. Why? Because James was Jesus' half-brother. He grew up with Jesus, didn't believe the claims of his brother until he rose from the dead. So, James is put there really by himself because James wrote part of the sacred scripture, and James didn't believe until he actually saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now, why were witnesses important? Well, this was central to Jewish and especially Roman culture and jurisprudence because if the writings were wrong, other historians could have disputed that. Again, I've read the the apocryphal books, I've read historical books, extra-biblical books, and there's no refutation in history to the resurrection. Well, some may say, well, I don't believe. Well, it's not a refutation. There's no argument there. I could say I don't believe in gravity, but if I jump off the building, I'm going to find out real quickly that it exists. So there was no historical disputation here. And let me tell you something. The reason, I believe, one of the great reasons, not only because Jesus said that he would rise again, that his appearance was to so many because persecution was coming. And if the Christians didn't actually see their risen Savior and know that that was waiting for them, when the Romans started slaughtering them by the hundreds and the thousands, that religion would have just petered out. There's plenty of religions in the world that kind of started and then just died out because of persecution. So Jesus had to solidify that in their minds that I am real, I am here, right? 40 40 days, uh, he had a 40-day ministry after his resurrection, so he probably did a lot of work in that period of time. Jesus said, even the, the disciples, if you read the biblical works before Jesus appeared to them, they were ready to pack it in. They were depressed. They were downcast. They kind of, you know, the road to Emmaus, you hear their talk, well, gee, we thought he was going to be the one until they saw the risen Christ and all of a sudden they changed. And they had to change because Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. 
And the gates of hell really tried in those first few centuries to prevail against the church, and it's still trying, and it's not going to work. One of the criteria for being an apostle was to see the risen Christ. Now, on a smaller scale, we are also witnesses of Christ's work. What are you talking about? Well, there are, there are definitely miracles. There's certainly a lot going on in the missions field. But what do we see? We see a changed life. We see miracles in those who used to be drug addicts and used to be you know, wild living and used to do incredible, crazy things. And all of a sudden, they're different. And they're at peace. They're serene. They have a, a real, true inner peace about them. You say, there was even historical writings about the Apostle Paul. They thought he went crazy. They said, this guy was a Pharisee and he... I forget which writing it was. I read so many of them. They said he was a Pharisee and he persecuted the Christians and all of a sudden this guy turns around and becomes one of them. What the heck happened to this guy? You see, it's evidence of a changed life and we get to see that today in ourselves and in others around us, right? You know, what's amazing to me is that, uh, and I shared the name with you, it, it escapes me. I read his name from the pulpit. Um, Hamas, you know, terrorist organization, uh, one of the sons of this great Hamas leader became a Christian just by reading the scripture. He had a flea for his life and I think he went to California for a while. But terrorists are now coming to Christ. Now if that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. If people aren't willing to see that, then they're not willing to see anything. And there's no sense in having a discussion because they're completely blind. They got worse than cataracts over their eyes, right? So pretty amazing stuff. And listen, I just would ask this to you or whoever's listening on the CD or the website. Um, if a terrorist can come to Christ and be completely free and at peace, what is it that you've done in your life that you don't think you can be forgiven for? Murder, drugs, wild living, saying yes and saying no, kind of, you know, what is it? There's nothing that escapes God's notice. There's nothing that escaped Jesus when he died for your sins. It isn't like you're going to become a Christian and get to heaven and the person who's doing the checkout at the gate says, whoa, Mr. Johnson, hey, we didn't see that one. You know, well, uh, it just doesn't exist. God knows everything that we've done. God knows every sin that we're going to commit. So listen, that change of life for the better is available for everyone for the taking. Just believe in Jesus' sacrifice for you. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles who, are, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is a humble testimony by the Apostle Paul. He puts it down in history. This is what I love about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. They put this stuff down for centuries of Christians to read. They, they put their shortcomings in indelible print, right, for, for everyone to read of their failures. That's what I love about the, the humility there. This guy pers uh, personally persecuted the church and I believe the Apostle Paul is saying here that he had a greater or a, a very uh, wide grasp on grace because what he was delivered from, right? And I think it's good for us today to meditate on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, not to take it for granted. The Apostle Paul said, I think this is funny, I labored more abundantly than them all. And he didn't do it. He wasn't trying to be boastful. I mean, he was, 
the Apostle Paul is very blunt. I find some of the things he says funny. But Jesus even said, he who is forgiven much loves much, right? There's many accounts of those wild and, and lascivious living. George Mueller, the uh, 19th century saint, uh, his mother was dying of cancer, and he was out gambling and drinking and hanging out with the guys and ignoring his mother, and she eventually died. Well, and, and he says this openly. He gets saved, and this is what he writes. This is how his life changed, and this is what he devoted his life to. He says, my business is with all my might to serve my own generation. In doing so, I shall best serve the next generation should the Lord tarry. I have but one life to live on earth, and this one life is but a brief life for sowing in comparison with eternity for reaping. George Mueller. So here's a guy, his mother was dying. He was out having a good time while she was dying. He didn't serve her, but his life completely changed. And he served his generation knowing that the next generation would be served. Pretty fascinating stuff. I'm not going to say, uh, definitely, you can't put a, a catch-all on some of these concepts, but sometimes, and you can see this in Tim Keller's book, he wrote about the prodigal son. He wrote about the, the older brother and the younger brother and how we often fit into one of those two categories. But sometimes those who grow up in the church can become spoiled or have an entitled mentality and don't have the same hunger for the things of God. And the danger, the danger is because it becomes more of a culture and a social club than a daily walk with our Lord, okay? And this is something we have to be careful of. I want to di digress a little bit. <laughs> I, my wife laughs when I say this. I've been working since I'm 13 years old. It's true. I've been working since I'm 13 years old. I remember the first place in Staten Island that I was a busboy in, right? And, you know, we have the tendency to try to make it easier for our children. You know, my grandparents did that. And sometimes, by trying to make it too easy for our children, we end up hurting them. You know, I had a lot of hard times in my life. And when I look at my little 10-year-old, I don't want to see him suffer at all. But folks, we got to be careful how we deal with our children. My son is growing up in the church. I didn't. You know? And, and I have a hunger for what God has given me. And I want my son to have the same hunger. Right? And my wife and I made a, a decision early on that he's going to come with us in ministry. He's going to see. We're not going to shelter him. When we would go to the welfare motels, and my son's very pensive about things. He, you never know what's going through his head. We'd go to the welfare motels, and there'd be a family, and the rooms would be big enough for two beds and a little narrow walkway to get behind the beds, and then one bathroom. That was the way they lived. And I remember going home after seeing this, and we'd be bedding down, and we'd all pray before we go to bed, and my son would say, Dear Lord, I pray for the people in the short houses. That was his way of understanding what he was seeing. He's like, gee, we live in a nice place, and I went to see them, and they don't have what we have. And he would, and this is what my son does. He sees the, the hardships, and then it comes out in his prayers. You know something's going through his head, and that's awesome. That's starting to build his character, right? He follows our lead. We don't follow his lead. I can't tell you how many discussions I've had with people, the, quote, you're the parent discussion. They're not your friends, you know. You lead them. They learn from you. You let them go through hardships. You help them get through it. You pick them up when they fall, but we don't idolize our children. It's very damaging. And the Apostle Paul got it. He knew what a bad person he was, and he was saved, and that he understood the concept of that grace, and he had such a hunger and thirst for the Lord. Verse 12, 
Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? I could just picture him writing that. I'd be, what, the, what are you guys thinking? You know? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Yes. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. So whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And in this life, only we have hope in Christ. We are men the most pitiable. How does anyone in the Corinthian church or any church say there's no resurrection? Well, today you don't have to go far to find a place that doesn't preach that. But we don't want to offend anyone. You know, there's a lot of religious tension in the world. So if you come to us, we call ourselves a church. We're tax exempt, but we don't preach that resurrection stuff. It's divisive. Well, you know what the Apostle Paul is saying here in chapter 16. And you know what? That, that teaching is demonic. It's demonic. Paul's argument is a logical one. If there's no resurrection, okay, then Christ isn't risen, makes him a liar, makes him too impotent to follow through on what he said he would follow through on. If that's true, he's a charlatan or he's crazy and self-deceived. And if that's true, the biggest fools are him and then us as the apostles, shortly after them the church leaders, and so on down the line. And ultimately, we're all dead in our sins and our loved ones who have died, we're never going to see them again and we're just kind of sitting on here on the ship of fools. You know, that's, that's basically what it comes down to. And in verse 19, if we have only the hope in this life, right? Uh, we have hope in Christ, we're the most pitiable. And that's bad news today if we're older or sickly or we have high-risk jobs because we're going to meet our demise sooner than everyone else. Obviously, it's not true. It's not true. Listen, everything you believe has ramifications. I've read the writings and the discussions of those of, of Hitler and Stalin and, and some of the worst dictators, and they, they denied uh, a lot of the Christian tenets. They you know, shut something off in their brains so they could kill millions of people. I don't know how you do that. But on their deathbeds, many of them were restless. You know, personal accounts of friends and historical accounts, they're restless. You know, they're in the, in the bed and they're, they know they're going to die, but they don't know what's going to happen afterwards. Well, what you believe has direct ramifications, right? The, you know, the whole idea, and, but both Stalin and Hitler, they both had ideas for the final solution. Well, where do you think that came from? It came from Darwin's theories of racial superiority. That's where the whole world race comes from. There's a, a black race and a white race and an Asian race, right? And we're all racing. We're competing against each other. Well, sure, if you believe in that, then somebody's got to be inferior. And if somebody's inferior, then you can treat them like animals and you can do whatever you want. Good stuff that we teach, right? And, and, and that's okay in schools to teach, but you can't teach the Ten Commandments. And that brings me to the Ten Commandments. Sixty years ago, kids would go to schools with rifles and pistols, and they would be a part of pistol clubs, target practice. Sixty years later, they're, they're, there's metal detectors. They're still bringing them in and shooting up their classmates. Does anybody scratch their head and look at the logic here and see what's going on? What's changed? Guns haven't changed. It's the hearts that have changed. We're giving these kids uh, no hope in schools. Anything that has anything to do with God, it's unconstitutional. So they're not getting it at home. 
They don't go to church, and the school is taking every last semblance of the existence of God out. Well, how do we expect them to behave? There was a situation, and I won't go into detail, in California, and it's becoming more prevalent where a, a teenage girl in a high school dance, let's just say that uh, 20 of her male counterparts brutalized her, and others looked on and walked by. This is insanity, folks, and it's becoming more prevalent. Why? Why is it becoming more prevalent? Because nothing matters. Everything's relative. There's no right or wrong. When you die, you just become dust and the worms eat you. There's no more consciences, you know? You just flatline and that's it. It's over. What a lie that we're teaching these children. No accountability to God, no, no resurrection, no consciousness in the afterlife. Heck, if that's the truth, then the Apostle Paul is saying, and I would say this too, we're fools for being here on a beautiful Sunday morning, 65 degrees. We should be out feeding our flesh. Well, how can you say that? You're the pastor. The answer is this. I would say to you, there's no sense in denying your flesh if your flesh is the only reality. There's no sense in denying your flesh and your urges, everyone that you have, if your flesh is the only reality. 70 years, 80 years, if you're lucky and you don't get hit by a bus, you know, feed your flesh, enjoy yourself. Well, that's not the truth. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five in the Greek, Ego eimi he anastasis kai hadzoe. And the reason why I say that in Greek is because it doesn't come out in the English. I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I have another name called the resurrection and the life. This is me. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he will die, he will live again. That is our hope, folks. That is our, our hope. John eleven twenty five. Verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You know, I really like the, um, the notable big denominations who are starting to turn their back on Genesis because they're pressured from the international community to believe in evolution. Genesis is a fairy tale. You know how many times Jesus and Paul and all of them referred to Adam and Eve? There's no fairy tale there. It's what God did. Why do we have to try to explain it away? It, it's what is, right? Adam existed. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Christ is risen from the dead, obviously. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you're from a Jewish background, the meaning is, is a little richer if you understand the old feasts, and I'll, I'll help to explain it. Uh, the feast of the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits occurred on the day following the Sabbath after the Passover. Jesus died, he was the Passover sacrifice. The day after the day following is a Sunday, which is the first day of the week, which is the first fruits. 
Okay? What they would do, the first fruits, is they would take the first of the harvest to be offered to God and consecrate the rest of the harvest to God. This is amazing. Christ is our Passover. And him rising on Sunday, on the third day, is a fulfillment of the first fruits of the harvest. What is Jesus? He's the first fruits of a harvest, right? He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's presenting himself, and, and he is a type of the rest of those who get resurrected. He's not going to leave us behind. We get to be part of the big harvest, right? So believers are the rest of the harvest, and we have the same hope. By man, Adam, death came and reigned. Adam brought sin and death into the world, right? I'm sure that when we go to heaven, the Lord may have to have him in protective custody or something. I don't know. I'm just kidding. And by another man, God, the, the, the God the Son who took the form of a man, broke that sin curse and made us all alive, right? So Jesus is the first fruits. Now check this out. He rose from the dead. And there was, a, I guess, a part of the harvest when you read, I believe it was in Matthew, Matthew's gospel where they came out of their graves and appeared to many uh, in Jerusalem. So Jesus started the ball rolling in the resurrection. Well, you might say, well, Lazarus was resurrected. Yeah, but Lazarus, Lazarus died again. That doesn't count, right? Jesus rose many people from the dead, but they died again, okay? This is a resurrection to eternal life. It's a different story. Now, when the big harvest comes is really what we understand as the rapture or the harpazo in the Greek, where the Lord comes for his people, things get just so tenuous on the earth that he, he pulls his people and calls them home. We're a part of the main harvest. And then the tribulation saints are really part of the gleanings. They're really the, the end part of the harvest because they're the last ones to get resurrected, right? After the millennial reign of a thousand years and the final battle where Satan is destroyed, and we covered that in our Revelation study, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy to us all. When I do funerals, I ask the question, why are we sad? Because we're separated from our loved one. And we know when we look, no matter how pretty they make them look, it's not them. There's something missing. The essence of them is gone. Where is it? I want, will I see them again? Will I be able to fellowship with, with them again? Death is our enemy because it separates us from our loved ones. You know, If we're alive long enough, we're all going to experience uh, some aspect of death in some form. So it's the last enemy to be destroyed. When Satan and his followers are sent to the lake of fire and all the saints are perfected, sin and death are finally destroyed and there's no more precipitator to that rebellion and sin. Right? And there's an order of events, uh, order of events here. God, God is entrusted, God the Father entrusted, God the Son. The, uh, the book of John tells us that all things were made through him. Uh, and also that he was to come and die for our sins, and that also he's going to reign in victory and, and destroy and topple the, the, the worldly kingdoms and put everything under the feet of the Father. There's an order there. So I leave you with this. What do you believe? I think I've made the case, and the Apostle Paul has, that your beliefs have consequences. Paul's beliefs prior to conversion were those of a religious zealot. Let's look at the Apostle Paul prior to conversion. Right? Some may have a problem with what I'm saying, but he terrorized family, families. He, to some, he was, to the Christians, he was a terrorist. He would come in, in the dark of night and kick in the door and have a warrant and bring men and women bound to Jerusalem. This guy terrorized people, right? And again, it's, some, it's hard for us to accept and swallow. But after being born again of the Spirit of God, love and obedience became the orders he followed. 
And he made a big impact for God's kingdom, which he couldn't do prior. He was frustrated prior. He was there. You know, they laid their feet at, at, at Paul, who was Saul, as they were stoning Stephen. He was a frustrated man. He, he breathed murderous threats, the Bible said. He was just maddened with trying to kill these Christians. And all of a sudden, his life has changed, like the historians record. Folks, if we have an apathetic or unconcerned attitude towards our beliefs, especially the resurrection, it's going to reflect in our daily walks. Look at the mess made in the Corinthian church. So it's always good to examine what we believe. If somebody asks you, 1 Peter 3.15, have a reason. Have a, a, a good defense, a good apologetics of why you believe what you believe. So it's good for us to examine what we believe, why we believe it, and only then can we find that inner peace, only then can we find purpose that even Christians are looking for and make a real difference in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. Lord, we thank you that this is in here. We thank you that we don't...